um, welcome to the uh, episode 37th of uh, Delight Tech Investment Weekly. Um, obviously, we held uh, 36 events before, and uh, we're going to spend an hour uh, discussing with uh, hopefully up to four founders about their founder journey, investment journey, uh, or fundraising journey, and also growth plans going forward. The session is split into three areas. I start the conversation uh, discussing about the, the early stages, uh, the founder journey, and then uh, Andrew will join us uh, around 20 minutes time to talk about, talk about the uh, fundraising journey. And then lastly, uh, Stuart will kick in um, 20 minutes to go uh, to talk about the growth plans. So Andrew, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Yes, certainly. My name is Andrew. I'm based in Manchester and I run a health tech startup called Malinko and we sell uh, scheduling software to the NHS. Thank you, Andrew. Stuart? Hi, Stuart Townsend. Normally based in Lancashire, but not at the moment because we've got no electric or water. So, uh, and we've got thick snow. So I'm actually in Wales at the moment. I run a consultancy helping B2B startups grow their revenue through indirect channels. And I've Got a couple of investments, one in a UK-based SMS company and the other in a US-based podcast company. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Uh, my name is Manoj Ranavira. Uh, I have been in uh, one, one uh, guy or another in tech startups since 2004. Uh, currently, I run an organization called TechSerate, where we are building a, a trusted founder network where founders can share their ideas, uh, problems, challenges, anything. Uh, and hopefully somebody within the community will know the answer. And we also have partners on board to help with processing the company, either getting the product right or getting those com commercialization milestones hit. Um, in addition to that, we have a product called D-Light, where we collect uh, data on what's happening in the UK tech investment market. So this event is really brought together as a result of some of those activities. And lastly, we have a, a free talent marketplace for tech companies, especially during those early stages. It's very hard to build a tech company, especially if you don't have enough. Uh, instead of chasing investors, we're trying to provide talent that could help the company progress. And all the talent is free. We just charge a, a little service charge to offer the service. So um, today is a little bit unusual. Maybe it's the snow. Typically, we have all the speakers uh, appearing on the app by now. We are down to two. If that happens, um, if nobody else comes, we have a lot more time with you, Cameron and Kai. So we typically go by how individuals appear on the screen. So Cameron, I got you first. So if we start with uh, learning a bit about your background and what uh, obviously, you've been part of uh, Imperial College. Uh, you could talk about that. And how did you get into creating this um, new company, Honeycomb Network, where you are helping, uh, especially with um, charging uh, associated with e-scooters, etc. cetera? Um, and also, please uh, talk about your founding team and those early stages, if you don't mind. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, hi, guys. Lovely to meet everyone. Um, I'm Cameron. I'm Honeycomb's. CTO and one of the four co-founders. Um, I studied at Imperial, I studied mechanical engineering, um, literally just graduated uh, this summer. Um, 
I specialized my degree in electric vehicle uh, battery pack design. Um, so I looked at uh, the design of some of the latest commercial EVs that are hitting the market now. So I looked at the VW ID, um, ID3. Anyway, uh, so I'm originally from Manchester, actually. I don't know if you can tell from the accent or not, but um, I studied in Manchester and then moved down to London for uni. Um, now, in my fourth year of university, I noticed the huge increase in the number of electric scooters that were on the roads of London. And being a student, I thought, right, that looks like quite a cheap and quick way to get around London. So I went and bought myself one in September 2020. And I was using it. Uh, a fair bit to go to like friends houses go to the uh, to the gym to uni and whatnot but the biggest issue that I had when I was using my scooters that was there was no nowhere that I could actually store it in public places um, so you know if I go to the supermarket I have to leave it at the front with the security guy if I go to you know when I used to go to uni I'd have to take it around with me all day obviously this is not helped by the fact that in the UK at the moment e-scooters uh, if you own your own are not legal uh, you have to use the rental ones um, but we saw a niche in the market and we thought right you know can I use some of the skills from my degree and the the knowledge that I have of, of battery charging etc to develop a product that allows people who own their own e-scooters to safely store and charge their vehicles in in public areas so I, um, I live with my CEO Gabriel in second and third year and we'd always had you know, plans to start something up uh, for our own. You know, we had some silly, silly ideas of the years. We wanted to do like a 3D printing jewelry company at one point. Um, but, you know, we've had, we've had all sorts of ideas. And I said to him, you know, I think this one actually could have wings here um, and, and we could go somewhere with this. So we took it forward as a, um, an idea for an entrepreneurship module um, at university. So Imperial has a business school and to engineering degrees, they offer these business modules. So we'd, we'd both chosen to do this entrepreneurship module. And we originally were part of a team of seven who we tackled the uh, who we tackled this problem with. And that team by January, so after the after the first term of uni, had, had narrowed it down, itself down to four members who are our you know, co-founders now. So we've got Mesa, Gabriel, our CEO, Mesa's our CEO, and we've got Will, our CFO. Um, and we were still at uni while trying to build this business up from January till about uh, April, March. And we can talk a little bit more when we get onto the investment side of things, um, you know, why we st stuck with it. And, um, you know, we want a bit of we want a bit of grant funding from the government, which is strange when you think about the legal landscape of e-scooters. But anyway, we're not complaining. Um, and then, yeah, we've done a private raise as well. So we are currently about 70 to 80 percent there with our first prototype. Um, so it's essentially a locker, very similar to what the Amazon lockers look like. but a bit of a different uh, carcass uh, and inside that locker there are charging leads for all e-scooters on the market so that's that's one of the problems that we've had is there's a quite a, a wide variation in the types of charges that are used um, and also the types of battery packs that are used in in uh, e-scooters um, so we've got the charging technology in there to essentially charge any vehicle on the market and we're now looking to expand as well into the e-bike industry so charging, um, charging uh, privately owned e-bikes. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about Honeycomb. Um, we will have a demonstrate at the end of January for our first prototype. Um, so hopefully we can get that going over social media and get people um, get people on board with it. We were at the Move conference two weeks ago, which was amazing for us. 
um, as a startup, you know, getting our name out there and speaking to the right people. Those sorts of conferences for us were um, absolutely amazing. Um, so it was a whole conference devoted to mobility in London. Um, so yeah, we're about a year old as well. Um, we started um, in August of 2020. So um, yeah, we're about a, a year old. So still, still quite infant. Um, but yeah, we can we can talk about our um, our investment journey uh, a bit later on in the session. So thanks, Cameron. So it's so what you're saying is that um, while there are uh, e-scooters out there that's offered by various providers. When it comes to private e-scooters, the charging is, is a massive problem. Correct. Yeah. So you've got the so the e-scooter market is essentially split in half. You've got the rental market, and then you've got the private market. Uh, now the the rental market, all the vehicles pretty much use the same charger. So it's there's, there's quite a lot of standardization there. But in that private market, where you've got so many different brands operating and trying to sell their vehicles you know they've not they've not all got together and said right let's all use this one charger type um which would have made our lives a lot easier but hey ho, um you know that might give us a little bit of ip in the future so so do you provide the uh, charging stations as well as uh, the mobile app to facilitate Correct. that's yeah. exactly right yeah so we're developing hardware software and mobile application um so the hardware being both the storage aspect, so the locker, and then also the charging aspect. Um, we're working with a company called TZ Limited, who essentially are the guys behind Amazon lockers. Um, they uh, they work with Amazon to to distribute those lockers out in the UK and uh, internationally as well. They're they're an Australian publicly listed company, but they've got subsidiaries in the UK and Singapore, etc. So they're they're pretty well established, and they've helped us a lot on our journey. From their wealth of experience, um, Adam, their CTO, has has been absolutely amazing with us. Um, really helped us and, and guided us um, because we are very young, you know, like we're twenty three. Um, we've just come out of uni. Mesa actually is still at uni; she's she's finishing her degree this year. So you know, we are a very young team, and having that experience there alongside us has been absolutely fantastic. So I'm 53 years, 30 years senior. <laughs> if somebody told me about e-scooters about 30 years ago, I would have thought that's nuts. But uh, here we are. Uh, so it's amazing to hear 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 your story. So if if you don't mind unmuting now, so I'll I'll move to Kyle. Um, Kyle, obviously I heard about your company some time back, and uh, uh, tell us about uh, Oxwash, Oxwash. Uh, and, and it's, it's quite quite difficult to pronounce sometimes as well. Um, but um, but you know, let, let's start with your journey before um, you st- you founded the company, um, and and uh, and and also talk about that founding team, please. Of course, and thank you very much for having me today. It's uh, an honour to be here. Great to meet you all. Um, so my background is unusual in that I was a NASA aerospace engineer for some years, uh, working on life support systems and environmental control, something called ECLIS. I then had a bit of a time and a stint at SpaceX, so a very different organization uh, with very different ways of working, but with a common goal, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, Again, working on life support systems. Um, Then went on to, when my visa expired, do a PhD in Oxford University on synthetic biology, all around trying to engineer microbes to help us 
live in distant parts of the solar system, provide us food, provide the plants that we need to grow for food uh, with nutrients and things from the, the dust that typically makes up those weird and wonderful planets in our solar system. Um, so nothing at all to do with where I find myself now and Oxwash. But put simply, Oxwash is creating a life support system for clothes and textiles. And this is a growing market. So typically the way that we wash our clothes, and store them and look after them in the world today is incredibly detrimental to the environment. And that comes in the form of vast amounts of drinking water used in the washing process vast amounts of energy, which typically comes from non-renewables used in the washing process to heat water, move the clothes around, as well as in the tumble drying and drying process, and in some cases, ironing as well. Then there's the bit that you don't see when you put in your skanky clothes at the front of a washing machine um, and they come out smelling lovely, which is what goes down the drain. And you can probably imagine that that's a lot of crap from your clothes, but also um, in, the, in the first world especially, constitutes a large amount of toxic chemistry. So, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been a small amount of movement towards biodegradable chemistries, surfactants, things like that, that help to clean your clothes. But by and large, the chemistry that we use today to clean our clothes is really, really toxic, causing eutrophication of waterways um, and basically obliterating microbial communities in sewage treatment plants, which make it very difficult to treat sewage. And then the fourth problem, which is becoming more and more common um, and is an invisible killer, is microfibers in the form of polyester, polyamide, nylons, all these weird and wonderful synthetic plastic derivatives that our clothes are made of that come off in the wash process, go down the drain through sewage treatment plants and out into the ocean. And they constitute over a third of all ocean plastic. And it's too small to see, too small to filter. God forbid, try to, to take out of the oceans. So Oxwash exists to basically take those four issues and four levers, minimise the impact of them on washing. So we've got a lot of proprietary technology around low temperature, in fact, cold water washing, which obviously helps enormously on the energy front, water reclamation, so that we basically don't use drinking water to clean our clothes. They don't drink it. It's crazy that we use that from the tap. Uh, and then filtration for microfibers as well as biodegradable detergent chemistry. So it's uh, a hell of an operation, hell of a journey, but we, we strongly believe in the future of clean clothes without polluting the planet. So Kyle, what was that pivotal moment you went from a NASA engineer to dealing with um, washing? What, what, mm. would be interesting to understand, what was that moment and what were you doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell you exactly what I was doing. So, I was down in the basement of my college at Oxford, um, which sounds super pretentious in itself, watching the rugby kit for our university rugby team, which smells, well, I mean, you can, you can guess how spicy it smells. <laughs> yes. um, and I went down and honestly, two thirds of the machines were broken. There was detergent on the floor. There was an iron on, on the floor in the corner and just clothes everywhere. And I was like, fucking hell, this is awful. How is anybody doing laundry here? Um, WhatsApp loads of friends saying, can I use your washing machine? And they were like, nope, mine's broken too. Or it's booked out until 2030. And I was like, ah, perfect. Here's a nice student kind of delivery laundry service um, that I could spin up alongside my PhD and a bit of cash. And at that point, I'll be completely transparent, upskill myself in entrepreneurship, marketing, product market fit, all that good stuff that I was really interested in and still am today. 
Um, but the, the eureka moment was when we grew so fast, we needed to find somewhere else other than a laundrette to wash the clothes that we were collecting for our customers and went to a commercial laundry. And it was absolutely awful, you know, really hot, humid, chlorine, burning your eyes, crappy work conditions, no filtration, leaky machines. And I was like, oh, fucking hell, this is awful. I'm not putting um, my customers' clothes here. And God forbid the environmental impact of this. Went to see a few more and they got worse. And that was the eureka moment where I was like, aha, perfect. Let's build the solution for this problem from the ground up. And that's where we are today. Uh, that's amazing to hear. So tell us about that initial founding team. How did you did you did you find uh, co-founders from the university, or did you how, how did you build that initial team? Yeah, interestingly enough, um, the initial team was not from the university at all. So our first paid employee, um, actually even before I was paid, was a chap who was a local cycle courier, so helped with the logistics and kind of hired a team of deeply conscious individuals um, that really believed in the mission. Uh, and it's only been probably a year and a half into the business, so um, probably two years ago now, that we really started penetrating the Oxford ecosystem and hiring people out of the university that have graduated or doing MBAs, things like that. Um, critically, for me, the, the great hire to this day, it was Tom, um, my COO and CSO, who uh, is a mechanical engineer by background, used to work, build some of the world's most fabulous and exquisite tree houses, which is an unusual skill, but actually lends itself incredibly well to engineering a process like, like washing and all the modular components for that. So he, he's been an exceptional hire. And we've got some other great leadership members from Franchise Brands PLC in Ella, our head of commercial. Um, as well as some others run boarding from places like Amazon as well. Thank, thank you so much, Kyle. Uh, if I, I think uh, it would be best to now start discussing about the, the fundraising journey. Uh, Andrew, would you mind taking over now, please? Yeah, of course, yeah. Kyle, if you can mute yourself now, we'll go back, back to Cameron. Uh, Cameron, if you're okay muting yourself. Uh, I just want to, want to hear now more about your, your, your fundraising journey and where you come from. And to start with, you mentioned that uh, initial one, you got some grant funding and a private raise. Was that through Innovate UK? I, I can see from the website, or was there other aspects to the grant funding? Yeah, so the grant funding uh, that we received was uh, part of something called the Niche Vehicle Network, so NVN, um, which I believe are partly funded by OZEV, so the Office of Zero Emission Vehicles. And I believe that probably comes from Innovate UK at some point, you know, it all trickles back, doesn't it? Um, so we, as part of Imperial, we, we were in that um, startup ecosystem um, whereby we were getting help from what they call the experts and residence service. Um, and we were looking into, you know, how do we get funding to kick all of this off? You know, we know that hardware, you know, being a hardware startup is not easy in terms of the funding. Yeah. Need. Um, it's, yeah, it's a bit different when you're running a software company and you can sort of build it out of your, your bedroom. But, you know, when it's hardware, it's a, it's a different ball game. So we knew we were going to need some sort of funding to get a prototype. And, uh, you know, we thought, right, can we get this from, from grant funding? It was, you know, it was made even more difficult by the fact that we were asking for money for something that would be promoting the use of essentially illegal vehicles on the streets of the UK. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we know we never thought we were going to get any grant funding. Anyway, we saw this grant come up 
by the Niche Vehicle Network, which was uh, innovative charging for niche vehicles. Um, okay. Now, e-scooters are, by definition, niche vehicles. Um, therefore, we, we so we put together a, a, a proposal for that grant with the help of um, a sort of grant consultancy, I guess they'd call themselves, uh, called Vandenberg. Hmm. Um, and they helped us to write that initial grant, that first grant we ever posted. Um, and, you know, we were so shocked when we got uh, invited to an interview for the grant. We were like, wow, okay, this is real. Because we were still at uni at this point. This is mid-exams. Yeah. So this is mid-finals. And um, I think we had that interview with the grant funders the day before our last exam, um, which was rather stressful. But, um, yeah, we had the interview and that all went swimmingly. And, you know, they, they offered us... £130,000 of a 70%, uh, sorry, a 30% match funded grant. So uh, they covered 70% and, and we had to uh, cover 30%. And right, yeah. so we're like, right, brilliant. Uh, this is fantastic. We've now got funding. Where are we going to get that 30% match <laughs> funding from? Um, that was, you know, it came to something like, uh, you know, 30 grand or something that we needed to raise and being broke students, uh, that was, you know, that was not coming out of the student loan. But yeah. <laughs> so we started looking into doing a, a pre-seed raise, um, did our runs with um, VCs, angels, um, and we came across uh, guys at SFC Capital um, who sort of specialise in, in pre-seed runs. And we got very lucky in that Adam, um, who was the sort of first investor that we spoke to in that team, was an e-scooter rider in London. So, so he, knew, <laughs> you know, he knew exactly what we were trying to, you know, he knew exactly what we were trying to develop and he'd seen the problem himself. So that made our lives a lot easier in, in getting things running with, with those guys at SFC. So we raised uh, 127,000 with those guys, um, which you know will keep us going for a year um right. and, and, that, and that take those are the the, the match funding element of the, the grant exactly yeah. yeah but but even yeah. before we got that um even before we managed to close that round we had to take a loan out from some angels um so a little bit of background on that gabriel our ceo um whilst he was at university he was working for a company called pivot power who recently got acquired by edf and they specialize in uh, developing battery storage for integrating renewables back into the grid um and so gabriel had been working there for two years and he'd been there since kind of the start of that company or you know early doors and he developed a good relationship with matt allen who's the ceo of pivot power and um you know and also a few other members of that management team and therefore they have helped us out massively by um, providing us with a loan um so that we could actually start that grant before we'd closed our round with sfc yeah, well, that, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, I've heard some horror stories of uh, people have had grants awarded. There's a, a match element to that. And then you've had, uh, you know, they've tried to raise money from kind of um, your, your various kind of funds. They've known that and the clock's ticking and they've used that ticking clock to uh, for ultimately the entrepreneur to end up with a bad deal at the end of it because they know they're desperate and they'll lose the grant otherwise. So what wise move getting that getting that loan? <laughs> Yeah, it saved us massively, honestly. Yeah. And we're so grateful to Matt and uh, a few others for, for giving us that loan. Um, really, really appreciate it. Because, yeah, as you said, it would have been rushed and we would have ended up, you know, getting stung, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're very, very thankful for that. And then on, you know, another little bit of funding, we recently uh, have won another grant for the e-bike charging stuff. So, you know, we originally went with grant uh, consultants to help us write that initial grant. But 
you know now we know the structure and how it all works we managed to write our own grant this time and and, and successfully uh, get an extra bit of money now to develop uh, our technology for e-bikes which is fantastic uh, means we won't run out of money now for a couple of extra months um so yeah that's our that's essentially our funding story um we also are in an accelerator called the greenhouse which is i believe run for run by imperial um in conjunction with the center for climate change um so as part of that we won twenty thousand uh cash so actually free cash um and also have offices at the royal institution of science which is amazing like yeah. i don't think as a startup you could have nicer offices for free um so that's been crazy and you know we've loved being part of this accelerator and being in that startup ecosystem with other startups who are you know all aligned in that they want you know they want to develop companies that help the planet so that's yeah. been that's been mega for us fantastic and just um go back to kind of you sfc here because their, their business model with it being kind of fairly early stage is to take a um you know a chunk of you know, at least kind of 10 percent um you know how, how how have you found kind of that, that process and their involvement um you know because obviously there's a cost to raising capital and giving up kind of some ownership so how how, how, how do you feel about kind of that and their their involvement now yeah i mean the... are they hands-on they're, they're quite passive uh, is the honest okay. answer because they spread because they have so many companies that they spread so far and wide um they are very extremely passive and for us mm. that's been good it means we just get on with it okay. um they do have the option to stick someone on the board if they want to um you know they haven't done that so far but uh you know they've been amazing you know they've been exactly how we'd want them to be at this stage um you know they've let us just get on with what we need to go on with um and and the process uh, you know for, for that was it fairly did they kind of like hold your hand and take you through it how painful was that process um it was a little bit longer than what we expected um you know we had that grant uh that we needed to start and we can we wanted we wanted money in the bank before that grant started but it, mm. you know it didn't end up going that way it ended up taking a little bit longer than what we thought it would um they did, they, you know, they did their due diligence as they would. Uh, we had oh. two interviews with them. First one was with Adam, who's the, the scooter rider, and then the second one was with the sort of wider team. Um, and you know, we've got the green light after that. And you know, it took a couple of months for for all of that um, to go through properly. Um, but it, you know, it was it was pretty plain sailing. It wasn't there wasn't anything. There was no stings or uh, you know, nothing too complicated in that. Um, it just oh. took a little bit longer than what we expected. Yeah. One one thing that's always good to share on um, things like this is is if you're kind of going back to the start of that process now, um, you said it was kind of fa fairly smooth and a bit longer than normal. Is there anything that you think you you kind of could have done or would be helpful to kind of share share with others um, to kind of speed that process up or make it a bit less painful? Um, I guess have a really good set of slide decks because that means you can you know you can send out to as many. Um, like investors as you as, as you can one thing that we found really useful is we spoke to a lot of investors um some of whom really liked the idea but it just didn't fit in with the portfolio of the companies that they invested in or they were a bit uneasy about the legislation aspect um but what they did is they did recommend us other investors you know they'd say oh try and talk to this guy you try and talk to this guy so i, I would recommend trying to uh leverage the network of investors that other investors know because that really okay. helped us i'm pretty sure sfc we got recommended by another investor 
um, they were like, you know, you, you should ever think about these guys. These guys are really good at investing in pre-seed companies. Um, yeah. A lot of the ones that we had talked to only really wanted to get involved at the seed stage. Um, so we were a bit too early stage for them. Um, Got it. But now that we, you know, now that we have a prototype, going back to those investors, another thing that we've done is we've set, we've already been thinking about our next funding round and we've been, been making connections with the investors that we want on, involved in that next round. And we've been saying to them, look, we have these milestones that we want to hit before our next funding round, you know, and if we can hit these, then we, we want to be looking at this sort of valuation. So we've been really open and honest with those um, relationships from the start with, with future investors. I think that hopefully, fingers crossed, will help us long term. Yeah, definitely. Especially as uh, you know, you've got I say a lot of hardware and infrastructure to provide. So you know, you've got to you know you will have those follow on rounds. Correct. Um, Cameron, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, you're okay to put yourself on, on mute now. And um, Kyle, uh, we've cost you a kind of a, a, a tox wash. Now, I, I do like one of your taglines. The first laundry on Mars was that from your your old boss, kind of <laughs> inspired. <laughs> Just- yeah, definitely. I'm not even going to pretend it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, w- w- one thing um, I'm kind of not not that can't quite sure about is this kind of predominantly you're going down that the commercial route. I know there's a domestic element to it. Um, could you share a bit about that first before we kind of dive into a bit more of the funding, please? Yeah, of course. Um, so to explain the kind of Oxford flywheel for, for simplicity, we do serve both the B two C, so direct to consumer market, as well as businesses um, and enterprises too and it's quite simple we typically acquire customers through them using us for domestic services um, you know such as your bedding every week your, your clothing often you're a young mum or a young dad with a young family um, and it's just a pile you cannot cope with especially with the modern rigors of life but also young conscious consumers and conscious retirees too are the kind of main primary buckets that we serve um, but what we're finding more and more is that businesses in circular fashion to which these consumers subscribe um, are in need of our services and that is rental re-commerce and what we like to call refurb and um, so that's the renting of clothes the pay yeah. subscription or paper item uh, buying them second hand or they need a clean so you can wear them again and you know our, our solution to low impact cleaning fits into each of those brackets and it's growing rapidly brilliant thank you and um just like to kind of yeah just move into the funding element a bit more now i wonder if you can you know talk about the the companies you work with because now on your you know you, you've now just done a recently a crowd cube before that you had kind of two other rounds if my understanding's correct on that um you know, h- how did you um find and decide kind of who, who to work with were these kind of uh niche um kind of funds or you know what what uh yeah what was your your kind of thought process around that Mm. Yeah, so maybe should I start at the beginning and kind of walk the please, timeline? Please, so good, good, good place to start. This was last year, wasn't it? Yes. Um, yeah. Well, actually, so I guess if we go back to the first time we took on um, external capital was our pre-seed round uh, back in 2019. So okay. this is where we took on just under half a million pounds uh, from, and at this point, I was a gutless idiot in the fundraising space. I had no idea who to turn to. And we got really lucky in finding some people that, uh, you know, were very, very clear in their objectives. Um, We did an accelerator called the Oxford Foundry, uh, which is a phenomenal network of impact investors and individuals. Uh, We met also the Mass, which is an early stage VC. They also do some late stage 
investing as well. Um, big name behind What Three Words and some other great platforms. Um, and they took a punt on us early on, which we're very, very grateful for. Lucas and Tidot there, um, the two general partners are absolutely fantastic. Really believed in our disruption of an industry that's typically unsexy, um, which I like. And, you know, we managed to bring on a lot of angels that had done similar things um, in adjacent spaces. Car washing is a primary primary example of one, for example. Um, you know, how the hell do you make a car wash sexy? So yeah. we've taken a lot of um, <laughs> uh, advice from angels in that space, as well as some strategic angels from Google, ex-Google COO. Um, we've also got a couple of other angels that have, you know, raised and, and built businesses in the in the recent term we then kind of basically deployed that capital to build our first operational center which we call a lagoon when we do the washing um show that the technology yeah. that we were talking about that we could build we actually could build um which was a big green tick so then we raised uh last year and then it was a, a quite a long close on the round um a seed round of just under five million pounds and that was to basically scale the operation to more cities and go go nationwide. So we had uh, lots of VCs involved in that round, um, as well as other strategic angels too. So um, one of the co-founders of Twitter, for example, um, the, the family behind the Virgin Group, um, who I'm sure you, you can guess who they are, fantastic yep. impact investors. Um, and they've really, really helped us to refine our vision for the business and find that really narrow line between profit and planets and also venture capital, because typically yeah. they don't overlap. Um, but actually, if you find the right investors that are 18-year-olds, again, investing for the long term, then you can find really, really valuable partners. And, yeah. So, you know, so, so Kat, what one of the credits people have is, is you know, how, how do you go about kind of finding these um, th these kind of individuals? Is that through kind of the networks you were involved in originally? Was it through your kind of your funding partners? Was it kind of referrals from existing kind of angels? Um, mm -hmm. you know, how do you get those kind of names? Or is it kind of just a case of knocking on doors? Yeah, I'll be honest. I think it is a multifaceted approach. Mm. But, but for, for me personally, it was, you know, throwing my face into someone's LinkedIn inbox again and again until they thought, fuck, I just need to placate this individual. Um, and then would message back, which which works. You know, it really does, especially if um, you ask for advice, <laughs> not capital, um, yeah. and then you get capital. If you ask for capital, you get advice, which is the best advice I've ever had <laughs> in terms of how you present yourself. Um, but then you're absolutely right. As your nucleus of uh, investors grows, obviously they're the stepping stone to warm introductions to other strategic investors that they know maybe have an investment thesis that aligns with your industry or they had a conversation about um, you and they were interested and you obviously have to take that crack in the door and, and really hit hit hard with a great story, good narrative and as Cameron's already mentioned, a diligent data room of your deck and information and things so you're prepared and you know you don't waste anyone's time. So yeah, a bit of a mixed approach. Yeah, and, and and your most recent round was uh, kind of well you, via CrowdTube. Was that kind of acknowledgement of you know you want to kind of build up your kind of consumer base, and was it more kind of profile raising? You know, um, mm. and, and how how did you find that process? Yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head. So we we absolutely did not do the crowd fund for the capital. Um, that's mm. an important thing to note. Um, and I'm not saying that you should never do a crowd fund for the capital. 
But we really wanted to recruit an ambassador base of consumers, retail investors um, that were also, you know, the customers of our enterprise clients too, the renters, the rebuyers, um, those kind of consumer traits too. Um, not only to democratize our shareholder base, which is something I'm really passionate about and think most businesses, if not all, should do, um, but also to help grow the narrative and obviously get people talking about laundry uh, and make it sexy. So that was the impetus behind the crowdfund, which was great experience, actually. Um, so our head of commercial, Ella, ran the show basically from start to finish. Mm. Um, made a great video, very clear narrative. It is really helpful when you get walked through the process um, in one of these kind of small Crowdcube accelerators. So we were really lucky in that we were the first in the first cohort alongside other brands like Petit Plea and, and Fertility Cycle in what was called the Collective Impact Program run by Virgin Startup and Crowdcube collaboratively. Um, and it's actually there that we met our um, investors from, from the Virgin Group as well through that through that program um, and it was brilliant you know really helps you build momentum ahead of launch which is absolutely critical to a successful crowdfund yeah brilliant thank you very much Carl, for, for sharing that with us um yes yeah, so, 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 some exciting times and uh so yeah first laundry miles i'm making laundry kind of sexy um yeah great great kind of taglines um yeah, I, I wish you luck, and I look forward to when your national rollout kind of reaches me, which it doesn't quite do that yet. So, uh, but no, no doubt it will will do in the uh, near future. Very near. Thank you. Right, uh, Kai, you okay? Can to mute yourself now and uh, move on to the, the the final kind of third of the program and hand you over to Stuart. Over to you. Thanks, Andrew. <clears throat> yeah, so as Andrew said, we're going to move into the final third part now. This is where we're going to talk about what the use of the investment is going to be in terms of sales, product, uh, fit, marketing, all the sort of nice aspects, and how you're going to spend it, basically. And we'll do it the same process. So we'll start with yourself, um, Cameron, in terms of Honeycomb. And what what are the plans for your investment as well? And what what's the model uh, that you're going to go out with? Is it a blend of B2B, B2C, um, all those sort of activities? And is there any more investment that you need to do in product outside of sales and marketing as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so on the B2B, B2C side of things, um, at the moment, uh, because this is such a, uh, you know, an in, this market is in, in complete infancy. No one has ever done what we're trying to do with setting up a, a network of charging and storage points for micromobility. You know, people have set up charging points for electric vehicles. You've got pod point. Um, but what we're trying to do is, is really focus on the consumer um, and providing them with a network that's essentially similar to the Boris bike network or Santander bike network, you know, where wherever you go on your vehicle, you know that at that end destination, there will be a point of charging and storage nearby. So we're toying at the moment between, you know, where we really home in, you know, do we really home in on that B2C market where we get consumers to pay subscriptions to have access to that network and you know in order to set up that network in the first place we need to do a, a very large raise um, so that we can roll out all that infrastructure at once what will be most likely is that we do it in a controlled area you know we wouldn't try and do all of london at once we'd, we'd try and focus and, and do it in a small area first and you know 
show that it works and then we'd look to scale up from there um, that would be on the b2c side of things so where the consumer pays that subscription we're also looking at doing a, a b2b model whereby we just uh, license our technology out to uh, landlords and property you know mixed-use property developers real estate um, residential developers who want to provide uh, amenities for their tenants um, so selling to you know CBRE or any of these Savills or anyone like this um, because for them at the moment yes not many people are taking e-scooters into the office due to you know that the legality uh, is in the U the legalities in the UK but there is going to become a point whereby the people who currently take them in and who are leaving them under their desk it becomes a health and safety hazard and you know the property managers want all of those vehicles in one location in potentially the loading bay or the sort of parking bay of the of the building so that you know you've got all the things that could cause a fire in your building in one location and we take care of all that through our uh, through our technology and managing that fire um so you're all you know we're also looking at that b2b side of things so just selling that technology straight to straight to other businesses um which again would would lend itself to having a, a different raise um so our next raise would, would be slightly different um short term in the next couple of months so q1 of 2022 we want to run the uk's first um private e-scooter trial so there's there's trials going on in 57 cities and towns uh nationwide at the moment but they're run by the rental companies uh so your likes of lime bird tier um voy all these sorts of companies but it's not we feel that those sorts of trials are not representative of the commuter market who would be using e-scooters every day to get to and from work or to the gym or or whatever it's a completely different uh dynamic there and you know we want to work with the uk government we want to work with dft we want to work with tfl to get that first private trial going in a designated area of london so that's our short-term goal um now we may have to do a, a raise for that um we're unsure at the moment um we're, but we're trying to get a whole load of parties together to work on that you know it requires insurers it requires property developers to be on board it requires us to to work with um the vehicle providers so the e-scooter provider uh, providers manufacturers it's a bit of a mammoth of an operation um and you know whether we need funding for that or not we're, we're unsure um but in terms of our next raise our seed raise uh we'll be looking at you know doing over a million in raise to actually get our technology rolled out in a in a designated area either in the uk or you know, if the UK doesn't hurry up with the legislation, then it will be in, in France or in Ireland who have, who have recently legalized e-scooters as well. Um, so those, those are our plans. Yeah, it's, it feels like you're in that space as electric cars used to be that you're going to um, break break down those barriers where, where need to, to take it forward. You know, you've got that challenging time ahead, but once you broke down those barriers, then you'll be the leader in, in that market, in that se segment. Exactly and, right, yeah. I mean, we want yeah. to try and saturate that market as quickly as possible. Um, you know, we want we want to be the guys that you go to to charge your e-bike or your e-scooter. Um, you know, at the moment, no one else is offering that. And we want to be, you know, we want to try and saturate that market very quickly. And one thing I wasn't aware of, and can you just explain it again, because I'm still a little bit confused. So with sure. the e-bike e or e-scooter, yep. you, 
what was the legality around it again? Is is a price? So if I go and buy one and I'm yep. driving it, and can I drive it or can't I drive it? What what was just? I was a little bit confused about yeah, that. Yeah, of course. That, yeah, I think I think most of the nation are quite confused. Yeah. To be honest with you, <laughs> so. Let's start with e-scooters. Actually, no. What we'll start with e-bikes because it's easy. They're legal, so you can you can go and buy an e-bike and you can go and ride it on the streets. Um, they're right. perfectly legal. Uh, what they are is they're assisted up to twenty-five kilometers an hour, and after twenty-five kilometers an hour, the the motor will cut out and you will have to pedal. Uh, you know, if you want to go any faster. So that that's that's the e-bike stuff. So that's fine. You 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 won't end up in a in a jail cell for that. But an e-scooter, uh, you can ride the rental ones. Um, so there are there are certain companies who operate in cities and towns across the UK, whereby you use their mobile app and you can go and rent a scooter for how many ever minutes uh, to get to where you want to go, and you have to sort of put them in docking bays, etc. Um, but if you own your own, if you go onto Halfords or you go into Pure Electric and you go buy one, it's legal to buy it, but you just can't use it on any public public roads. So you can go and ride it on your on your driveway if you want, if that's what you're inclined to do, but you just can't. You know, you can't use it on any public roads. And if you do use it on public roads and a police officer sees you, you get a £300 fine and you get six points on your license. And then you have to pay another £150 to get it out of the impound. So it's, you know, it's, it's okay. ridiculous when you, when you think about the fact that e-scooters, are, most e-scooters on the market, I'm not going to say all of them because it's not true, but most e-scooters on the market are limited to 25 kilometers an hour or 15 miles an hour. Um, which is exactly the same limitation that's imposed on e-bikes. However, if you do own an e-bike, you can cycle it faster than that. So, you know, there's a, listen, I wish we could get on some sort of, you know, talk show or something so we could, you know, highlight how stupid the laws are at the moment regarding e-scooters versus e-bikes. It just does not make sense. But, you know, you can understand why we're now trying to target the e-bike market in the UK more than the e-scooter market. It's purely based off a, a legality point of view. Um, yeah, and, and that's that's where yeah that makes sense because I think I was in Costco or somewhere and I saw a scooter and it was like you can buy it but you can't ride it on the road. Like, exactly what, right. What's it's the, crazy. What's, what's the point of having it then? Exactly. <laughs> so, it's crazy. Where, whereas again, like you say, you ride your e-bike to work and you still want to charge it, and it's the same as driving your electric car. You know, driving that to work and not being able to charge it limits that market. But suddenly you've now got businesses. Um, a friend of mine's got a business in Lanc- Lancaster. Uh, it wasn't Morales Data. It was a holding company, but I can't remember what he's done it under now. But that, that was his premise. He's building out electric charging points in places of work so that people bring their cars there and it'll drive the acceleration of, of the products to market. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is exactly what we're trying to do with micromobility. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, once you're out there, again, you, you've got to sort of break these barriers down, but then you become the leader. And it's like, say, it's first to market around that. It is yeah definitely it's first to market and also getting you know ip protection in place um which is something we're working on at the moment as well excellent excellent well cameron thank you very much for that and thank you for explaining it as well i thought it was just going crazy because uh, when i saw them for sales like that's a lot of money but i didn't realize as well that you could get points on your license and there's such a large fine and you've got to take it out it becomes a very expensive um present most definitely so i know it's crazy yeah so if you're buying any e-scooters for christmas this year just think about uh think about that extra fine you might get yeah it's uh i think that can go off the christmas list most definitely I think it's best, <laughs> better things that you could uh, be buying to get a fines for definitely. <laughs> well uh well thank you very much cameron taking the time out you can now have a, a little break and we're going to move over to yourself kyle 
Um, and, in, and it's the same format as well, Carl, in terms of, again, you're, you're taking uh, seed follow-on investment and Oxwash, you were mentioned earlier, is going across, you've got B2C and B2B um, across that as well. It'll be interesting, again, to see with the investment, what the plans are over the next six to 12 months from a, a product investment or marketing or sales um, and where you're going to drive it forward. Mm, yeah, I think this is something that we've been really thinking about hard with the disruption of the pandemic to um, a lot of the industries that we built the business around. Um, so apart from consumers and students in, in Oxford, hence the Oxwash name where we, we first started, uh, we've served a lot of hospitality clients in the past and still do. You know, Airbnb managers, Airbnb hosts, cafes, restaurants, gyms, spas, nail salons, veterinary practices, honestly, you wouldn't believe the types of laundry people have. Um, but obviously with the pandemic, a lot of those hit ground zero shut, so did our revenue lines from those customers. So we've been really analysing where do we think the future is going to be. And, and like I mentioned earlier, we strongly believe in the growth of the circular fashion economy. It is bonkers that there are eight times the number of garments in existence to humans. We've got enough clothes already made uh, to clothe the next three generations of people at the growth rate the, the global um, kind of population already has. So we really want to do our bit around offsetting that by making clothes live many lives. And is that for the consumer sat at home with their favorite outfits that's going round and round and being reworn all the time? Is it the stock of rental items that you know, are being rented 20, 30 times before being being sold secondhand or secondhand marketplaces themselves. You know, the biggest barrier to people buying secondhand clothes is the guarantee of cleanliness and quality. You really don't want to buy something that smells of the last person that owned it, whether that's a good smell or a bad smell. So we've been doing a lot of work to finding and iterating our products, um, which is very simply a super sustainable cleaning platform for those types of clients and whether or not someone sends us their favorite overcoat that they need um, you know wet cleaning ahead of the winter season to a company that's looking to rent out 10,000 items and have them in circulation um, to promote their ESG agenda we can service them both I think it's up to us now with the money that we've raised and money that we're going to be raising early next year to build out that platform really start to double down on our commitment to being a primary net zero business by the end of next year through the filing of patents um, and IP around specific parts of our washing and drying process that really do need to be cracked for us to be a truly net zero emitter. Um, and that's where a lot of the funding will be going to. Sorry, I couldn't get off hold. Excellent. I was looking at some of the stats as well. and. Um... And this is really bad because I have seen some adverts lately. It's, there's definitely more sort of public awareness now, isn't there? Um, I can't remember if it was Purcell or one of those guys advertising on YouTube. Again, about yeah. sustainability and about reducing temperature when we're actually doing washing and that sort of thing um, and reusing it. So it's, it's a great time to come on board with that message because I think people are more aware of the impact and what can happen. But yeah, looking at some of the stats and numbers you've got on the site, of like, oh, okay, I, I didn't realise the impact that it did have and like you say mm -hmm. it's, it's about passing it through and having um buying pre you know clothes like you said there's so many clothes out there now and this throwaway sort of society type of thing of buying some clothes that you just throw away in five seconds just seems like ridiculous to me mm -hmm. amen i mean honestly it was pretty disgusting to see some of the sales that were going on a black friday last last week 
um, around 99.9% discounts on certain lines. And it is just big manufacturers offloading stock to conscious, well, yeah. irresponsible consumers that perhaps are you know, being bought, bought with AdWords. And it, it really is nice that we can do our bit to offset that. Um, I mean, the, the thing about laundry and wet cleaning is that the impact is often invisible. You know, the process by which you go to a dry clean on the high street laundrette, use your washing machine, put something across the counter or in the machine and it comes out sparkly, smelling great, is a really nice dopamine hit. But what isn't is when you look at the CO2 that's generated, the water that's been contaminated, that comes out the back end of the process. So it's our job to really shine a light on that problem um, to get the narrative and get it front of mind so that people understand the impact of the way that they clean clothes today. Um, we're not the only people in this space. You know, there are some great products and great businesses working on uh, textile innovations, the chemistry side as well, um, which is really important. But we're also not perfect. Um, so it's our agenda to be net zero by the end of next year. We currently burn far too much um, natural gas or liquid propane gas in some of our drying processes, simply because to power those processes by electricity and renewables isn't feasible um, at the moment, unfortunately, with technology where it is, hence why we're innovating low temperature drying um, using some really cool technology there, because that for us is the biggest agenda. You, know, you can offset emissions and Christ, the amount of brands and you know big corporates that offset by planting you know, theoretical effervescent mangrove forest is crazy. Um, You know, it's up up to us to actually innovate, you know, so we can say, no, we actually don't burn any natural gas anymore. Um, And to be very, very candid about that. And I think that's where investors see huge value because the technologies that allow us to do that are obviously incredibly valuable, not only in our industry, but hopefully in others as well. Definitely. And, and obviously not with this round, but your, your next round, what, what's the sort of location? How are you going to choose the next set of locations to expand out outside of, I'll call it the sort of L- London um, circle? Obviously, we're all, all in the northwest on the call. On, on the call. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it'd be good to understand what, where will be the next locations that you look at and how do you determine that? Yeah, of course. So to kind of lift the lid on our strategy slightly, um, the view is to launch our service nationwide first so that we'll be able to wash items from both consumers and businesses anywhere in the UK, which is critical. Um, and we'll be launching the beta for that early next year in Q1. Using the data by which basically we see where people are when they need items that need to be rejuvenated, cleaned or you know, washed between rental or, or repurchase, we're able to then say, okay, here's a high density of consumers that need that. We can then deploy our local lagoon model, which is very simple. It's a bit like a dark kitchen for laundry where we set up a local lagoon. Uh, we use electric cargo bikes to do first mile, last mile logistics, which not only are brilliant in terms of the efficiency of the asset by moving uh, you know, kilos and sometimes tons of laundry and wet cleaning around, but they're a really, really good way for us to acquire customers, um, and it's our primary customer acquisition channel. They see these wonderful, garishly painted electric cargo bikes that look like a love child between a, uh, a plumber van and a, and a push bike, and they go, what the hell is that? And then they're on Google, and then we can present our mission and purpose, and they're like, yes, I'm in. And the asset I just saw is, is only part of and the tip of the iceberg. So that's by and large our uh, kind of mantra moving forwards. It does mean 
heavy investment into assets and process. You know, washing machines are not cheap, especially when you want to modify them within an inch of their warranty life to do unusual and wacky things. Uh, but we've got some great OEM partners on board that really strongly believe in our, in our mission and don't void our warranty every time we go tinkering, which is great. Excellent. That's a great plan. That's a great plan indeed. And, and also going to make a massive impact and difference. Thank you. Well, again, Kyle, thank, um, Kyle and Cameron, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm going to now hand over to Manoj, who can do closing notes before we wrap up the show. Uh, thank you very much, Stuart and Andrew. Uh, thanks, Cameron and Kyle, for uh, turning up on Monday and sharing your stories. Uh, I'm sorry to listeners that we didn't uh, have the, the four we promised, um, but, uh, but it's a Monday and I think probably, uh, I don't know whether the snow got in the way. Uh, sometimes when uh, it snows in the UK and everything comes to a standstill. Um, I hope those two are all right. Um, so thank you so much. And uh, hopefully I'll up upload the uh, audio to St Spotify and share that with you. Uh, and, that, and you know, really appreciate the time because Mondays is not the best day. Uh, everybody's busy, start of the week. Uh, thank you so much, Cameron and Kyle, for taking time and sharing your stories with us. Take care. No worries. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.